Hello, everyone. I've been away for two weeks. And then during these two weeks, uh, quite a few people have asked me if I have gone on a trip with Philip and Naomi Ma. Uh, are they back yet? No, no uh, okay. So I'm not, okay. Uh, I, I guess some people knew that I went to um, the Baltic Sea for a trip with my parents. And then Nathan has been posting on Facebook the pictures of his trip in Baltic. So, so part of my trip and their trip uh, was to uh, St. Petersburg. And to me, it was a, a dream come true because I finally got to see with my own eyes the painting of Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. I have a replica uh, poster hanging in my office for over the last 10 years. Now I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I mean, I don't know if you can see, I have this hearing device here. Just want to make sure I, I'm not working as a security guard. It was for my tour guide to speak to me, to, 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 to talk, and for me to listen. Um, so in the night, I, I was so excited to tell my wife about what I saw. By the way, she had to make a last-minute cancellation of the trip because she had to go back Hong Kong to take care of her parents' needs. So I just went with my parents by myself, so the three of us. So with so much excitement that I was going to tell her, I finally saw the prodigal son painting, she just interrupted me and said, Did you see Philip Ma? I was like, no. <laughs> I saw the prodigal son painting. And anyway, speaking of traveling to, to Europe, one thing you cannot avoid is visiting churches. Like these ones. Um, but as many of you know already, church buildings in, in many major European cities have, been, I mean, have become more like a tourism hotspot than a worship place. Perhaps it was the vision of the early architects that in case the worshipping congregation ceased to exist, the building, because it's so beautiful, would still remain to point people to God. Well, that's Europe, not Canada. At VCBC, we have no such option because I think we all agree that our building has zero tourism potential. Unless, William, you know, you have some creative plan for us. So our only option is to keep making disciples of Jesus. Generations after generations, if we are to continue to exist. Well, some say that human race is always one generation away from extinction. Humans will cease to exist if one generation of us do not or cannot reproduce. And so are churches. Churches are always one generation away from extinction. If one generation of Christians does not or cannot make disciples, that would be it. So all churches must be deliberate in developing next generations of Christians. And this becomes the fifth and final vision of DCBC which we call it empowering future generations of disciples of Christ. 
Our theme Bible verse for this vision is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, in which Paul said to Timothy, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Well, here we can see that Paul has in mind four generations of Christians. Well, there is Paul himself, the first generation, who taught Timothy, the second generation, who must entrust what he learned from Paul to reliable men, first generation, who will then teach others, fourth generation. And not only Paul, empowering future generations has always been an important but surely often neglected theme in the Bible. In the whole Exodus process, Moses was always mindful to develop future leaders such as Joshua to succeed him. In the entire earthly ministry of Jesus, developing and empowering his immediate disciples such as Peter and John were necessary way for Jesus to ensure that his gospel will continue to be proclaimed. So today, I would like to follow the text of a lesser-known account of empowering future generation in the story of Elijah and Elisha. The passages I'll focus on are the first Kings, uh, chapter 19, and then Second Kings, chapter 2. Well, let's, let me read to you first Kings, chapter 19, three verses, 19 to 21, and see how this whole story between Elijah and Elisha opens up. The scripture goes like this. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. And then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. The whole story between the prophet master Elijah and his protege, Elisha, begins with a calling. This is not unusual because most biblical characters appear through a calling. Noah was called to build an ark. Moses was called to lead the largest scale of immigration in human history. David was called to be king of Israel when he was probably just a teenager. Isaiah was called to proclaim the message of judgment to Judah. And then Jesus called various individuals to follow him as disciples. So, so as we can see, a divine call often serves as a watershed moment for any given individual. Their lives before and after the calling are drastically different. Life is no longer the same when God calls you into serving him. For Elijah, this calling was nothing less than a total surprise. He never would have expected that this will happen to him. 
He might have heard of Elijah. Elijah was quite famous at that time. But he did not know Elijah on a personal level. Although their names sound similar, they're not related. You know, just like the Wongs, not related to the Fongs or the Chongs or the Tongs. The name Eli is a short form for Elohim, which means my God. So Elijah means my God is Yahweh. Names should be pronounced as Eliah. And Elisha means my God is salvation. But before this passage, Elisha had no expectation that one day he would meet the great Elijah, let alone becoming his student. But out of the blue, the great prophet Elijah show up in front of him. Not only that, Elijah threw his cloak around him. Well, this is where the phrase passing the mantle comes from. This call may be sudden, but that does not mean that it is unplanned. God gave Elijah specific instructions a few verses ago to find Elisha and call Elisha to succeed him as a prophet. But this happened without Elisha's prior knowledge. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who owns at least 12 pairs of oxen, so at least 24 of them. 24 oxen mean wealth in the ancient world standard. Elisha is a silver spoon. When Elijah found Elisha, he was plowing with 12, the 12 pairs uh, of oxen. This means that he is managing the family business as the rightful heir. Elisha's life was then was comfortable, secure, familiar. And yet, totally unexpected, he found Elijah's mantle being cast upon his shoulders. Obviously, Elisha knew what it meant. So what's remarkable was Elisha's response to this calling. He ran after Elijah, not to return the cloak, but he told Elijah that he is going to kiss his parents goodbye and then would come back to follow him. Elisha was willing and obedient to the calling of becoming the next generation of Yahweh's servant. But we need to know that being a prophet at that time, while King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were ruling over Israel, was the worst kind of job one can get. It is the least respected, least satisfying and certainly most hazardous job available in the market. Remarkably, Elisha was immediately willing to give up security and familiarity for disrespect and danger in order to serve God. But some of us might, might be quick to note that Elisha is a special case. His call is unique. He is called to be Elijah's successor, much as Joshua was Moses' successor. So we may quickly assume that this text does not refer to us as the, you know, the John Doe, the Jane Doe level of Christians. If we think that Elijah's call carries no relevance to us, then we are mistaken. For in one sense, Elijah's call is not all that unique. For it simply depicts 
that God is always entitled to do. I mean, what God is always entitled to do, which is to command our obedience and allegiance, and what we are always obligated to acknowledge, that God has the right to do so without needing our approval. Elisha's particular call only dramatizes in a unique case the general attitude that God's people are to have. Namely, that we are servants ready to do the Master's will. Not only did Elisha follow Elijah immediately, he also did one thing very special. He burned the plowing equipment to cook meat and gave it to the people. Elisha made a barbecue block party for his village people and family. But the interesting thing is that he did not burn regular wood for the barbecue, but he burned his plowing equipment instead. Of course, it doesn't mean that Elisha ran out of burning wood. Rather, he did this as to burn his bridges for going back to his old profession. He doesn't want to keep his option open. He doesn't want a safe haven to return back when he faces frustration in ministry. It's a sign of strong commitment to Yahweh's call. I mean, maybe we can try this at our summer barbecue event. Right? I mean, just bring your whatever Xbox or television, iPad, and you know, whatever potential hindrance to serve God. You know, just bring them to church, and we can burn them and cook hot dogs and barbecue and, and, and burger. Right? But joking aside, we must, like Elisha, consider the hindrances the obstacles and the difficulties that may stand in the way of a wholehearted commitment to Jesus. Burn them. For Elisha and for any faithful disciples of Jesus, God's call must dominate everything. Elisha never planned to be a prophet. I mean, it's never his goal to succeed Elijah. Elijah. But when God calls him, he makes God's will his will. God's goal his goal. No conflict. I mean, if we are struggling with conflicting interests in responding to God's call, it's only because we are unwilling to make God's goal our goal. We still hope that God will make our goal his goal. But it never works that way. God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. Also, we have a tendency to think that there are two callings. One is for God to call us into salvation, and another one to call us to serve Him. But in the Bible, there are never two calls, but one. The one call God makes to any individual includes both a call to salvation and a call to serve God. We must not split them into two and pick and choose whatever suits our desire. In the Bible, when God calls you, it's both a call of grace and a call of responsibility. If you do not respond to this call with both a thankful heart of God's grace and an obedient attitude to take up your responsibility, then your response to God's call might be questionable. Now that Elisha suddenly becomes a next generation. But then, not so suddenly, he is going to transition from next to now. 
A couple of chapters later, in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah's life is coming to an end, leaving Elisha to carry on the prophetic ministry. In chapter 2, verse 1, it begins by saying, When the Lord was, able, was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The funny thing is that this pattern of Elijah asking Elisha to leave him and Elisha insisting not to leave him repeats two more times till verse 6. As a prophet with some access to insider information, Elijah was told that his life was on earth is going to end soon. With Elijah's departure, an era is passing. Elisha's cry in verse 12 indicates the esteem in which Elijah was held. Verse 12, it says, Elisha saw this Elijah being taken away and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Elisha called Elijah not only father, but also a special title, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elijah is the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Chariot and horsemen were military material. To have Elijah was like having the army of God. Elijah was the true defense system of Israel. And this is no exaggeration. Elijah single-handedly stood against 850 false prophets on Mount Carmel. Of course, God was with him, but truly he was the only prophet there when he was ridiculously outnumbered by the anti-God regime. Now this defense system of Israel is going to be gone. For in the midst of, a, of an idol-kissing and, and prophet-killing oppression and you know, a, a regime like this, Elijah stood in the gap. Now Elijah is to be taken. An era is ending. But in this critical moment, Elijah repeatedly asked Elisha not to follow him. This must be frustrating for Elisha. He has left everything behind to follow Elijah in order to one day succeed him as a prophet. Now the time is about to come and Elijah is telling Elisha not to follow him. For church, for any church, to remain on earth as a useful instrument for God, Generations after generations, each generation of Christians, whether you consider yourself a now or a next, we all will from time to time face frustration. Things don't make, make much sense. Issues that don't seem to lead us forward. I mean, we can either choose to quit, let frustration overcome us, or we can choose to be like Elisha, to persevere and set sight stubbornly on what he has been called to do. Three times, Elisha insisted, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. He stayed the course until Elijah stopped asking him to leave. Of course, what, what Elijah did was only a test of commitment 
to Elisha. And Elisha passed the test. For a next to become a now, the test of perseverance is often required. We live in a no-commitment culture in, many rela- in which many re- relationships, whether it's professional, marital, friendships, or even spiritual relationships, can be terminated when displeasure and frustration arise. A church needs to empower the next generation. There's no question about it. However, all generations need to demonstrate commitment and dedication to the larger cause, to God's kingdom, and to his call on each of us that quitting is not an option. As Elisha passed the test, he would need to face the inevitable life without the great Elijah. Leadership transition is always a potential threat for church stability and sustainability. Not all churches can survive leadership transition. Not only churches, even ministries within a church can suffer the same problem when new leaders come on board to charge. Sometimes when the next becomes the now, we try so hard to maintain the status quo to keep doing how things have always been done because the previous leadership has done it so well. Sometimes you would go the other extreme to try try so hard to change everything and to be innovative. In politics, it's said that it's always easier to be the opposition than to be the ruling party. But the opposition party is mostly reactive. They criticize and maybe fight against whatever the ruling party rolls out. But for the ruling party, it's always initiative. So when the next becomes the now, the role has changed. The perspective has changed. The pressure has increased. You take the initiative, and whatever you do will be subject to scrutiny. There will be anxiety. There will be a drive to want to take a step back and not picking up the mantle. Elisha could very well be in the same situation. So far, Elisha was under the shield of Elijah. The number one enemy to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel has always been Elijah. But now Elijah is gone. The Israel's most wanted list now has Elisha up on the top. Who would want that? How could Elisha deal with that? Well, Elisha dealt with it by asking the right question. When Elijah was taken to heaven, Elisha asked in verse 14, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Elisha was not looking for Elijah anymore. Elisha knew it so well that it's never about Elijah personally. It's always about the God of Elijah. Elijah's success, as significant as it was, was only because of the God of Elijah. So, when you obediently and courageously step up and pick up the mantle of a leader, and for the first time, you are taking lead of a certain ministry, keep in mind that however successful the previous leaders were, it's all because because of the previous leaders got not them. I mean, of course, there are things we need to learn from the previous leaders, and a good model to follow. 
But at the end, ministry success was never a human achievement. Look at what happened to Elijah before and after Elijah's departure. Verse 8 said that when the two stopped at the Jordan River, Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. What's so significant here is the location. It's Jordan River being divided. If you know the, the Old Testament well, you would know that this is not the first time the Jordan River was divided. When was the last time that it was divided? Anybody remember? Who, who did that? Joshua! Yeah, in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites just finished the 40 years of wilderness wandering and began to enter the promised land, this happened at least 600 years before Elijah. Elijah was about 800 B.C. Joshua was about 1400 B.C. So 600 years have passed. The society has changed from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Imagine how folks in Elijah's day might claim that they live in a different time. Instead that they face different cultural problems and that the world political configurations have changed drastically. There was no kingdom in Joshua's time. Now there are two kingdoms in Israel. But the text today says that it doesn't matter. Because the God of the Bronze Age is the same powerful God in the Iron Age. And it's the same loving God in our information technology age. God is still saving and sanctifying His people. Still keeping them from the evil one. Still leading wandering Christians to repent and to renew their obedience. These works are not limited to Pentecost or to the Reformation or to the 18th century revivals. From this we know that God's power is not tied to a particular era. The historical God is also the contemporary God. Then, after the two crossed the Jordan River, Elijah was then taken up to heaven, leaving Elisha there. Verse 14 says, Then he, Elisha, took the cloak that had fallen from him, Elijah, and struck the water with it. Now, Elisha was doing that. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. From this, we can see that not only God's power is not tied to a particular era, it's not limited to a certain instrument either. Elijah was an instrument of God, but he was not the instrument. Elijah was part of God's plan, but he was not the plan. None of us is. This should prevent us from idolizing certain servants of God. Our help is in the name of the Lord, not in the charisma of His servants. God's leaders come and go. God's power persists. Once God's power was demonstrated through Elisha, the narrative went on to the most difficult section of this chapter. In this section, after Elisha assuming Elijah's prophetic ministry, he performed two miracles. On the service, it seems that these miracles are random and don't have much connection with each other. However, 
This is only the point of view if we read these miracle accounts separately. When these accounts are read together, then you get the sense that they portray the meaning of God's agenda in each of his servants. The first miracle took place in the city of Jericho. There people in Jericho said to the prophet uh, Elisha in verse 19, they said, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. So there was a problem with the water in Jericho. Nothing grows out from the land. This is a devastating situation. So Elisha did what a prophet would do. Verse 21 goes on. Then he went on to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause theft or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha has spoken. That's the first miracle. Now the second miracle, which is a much harder miracle to understand, happened in the city of Bethel. Verse 23-24 describes the incident. From there, Elisha went up from Jericho. He went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out, youths? came out and jeered at him. Go on up, you bowhead. They said, go on up, you bowhead. He turned around, looked at them, and called out a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mowed 42 of the youths. One, two, three, four. <laughs> now, as a servant of God who is losing his hair day by day, I love this passage. <laughs> but it seems cold-blooded and unforgiving, right? I mean, we would say that Elisha should not take things so personally, right? It doesn't matter what other people say. Then, how are we to understand this incident? At the end, it is not Elisha who caused the miracle. It was God. Well, we are to understand this incident alongside with the previous one, which is the healing of Jericho's water. Combining the two miracles, we get a full illustration of God's grace and God's judgment. Jericho was a cursed city in most of Old Testament history. Yet, a city that was cursed can be healed by the grace of God. This is the gospel. Undeserved grace from suffering to healing. God's word through God's servant brings God's grace even to a cursed city such as Jericho. But grace cannot exist without the backdrop of judgment. Judgment is necessary for grace to be needed. If no judgment, why would you need grace? So the second miracle was about God's judgment. If the healing of Jericho's water was not a personal feat of Elisha, then we should not understand the insult in the second miracle as a personal insult to Elisha. It's never about the prophet himself. Insulting God's prophet is an insult to God himself. 
When Pharaoh did not listen to Moses, he did not listen to God. When the city of Nineveh listened to Jonah, they listened to God. It's never about the prophet personally. If in the first miracle, God granted healing when people seek him, then in the second miracle, God bestowed judgment when people oppose him. The message of judgment and grace, disaster or deliverance, harm or healing, frames the entire ministry of Elisha. Elisha would spend his whole life serving God's agenda, an agenda of grace and judgment to the world. And this agenda has never changed. Churches struggle to be relevant to the world nowadays, not due to the fact that the world needs more interesting sermon or upbeat music, not due to the fact that the issues of sins and, and, and forgiveness are not receptive to the society. No, but due to the fact that churches struggle to stay faithfully on God's agenda. We begin to preach grace without judgment, healing without harm, deliverance without disaster. You know, the most relevant thing a church can do to the world is to faithfully preach in words and in deeds the gospel, which contains both grace and judgment. So finally, Elijah needed Elisha. Moses needed Joshua. Jesus needed the twelve. Paul needed Timothy. The now always need the next. That's how the church has survived throughout the last two millennia. We're always one generation away from extinction. We need the next. But we don't need the next to always stay as the next. The next must become the now, sooner or later. Our church, over the last few years, has been really blessed and and sustained by God's tremendous grace. But the fact remains that maybe 80% of the work is done by 20% of the membership. That won't last long. People will be burned out. Conflict will arise. Our relevance to the world will be lost. We cannot let that happen. We need you, all of you. We need all of you to step up, to take the responsibility, and we serve together. I know the nomination committee is seeking recommendation from all congregations. I mean, they have this uh, East, East paper. Don't throw the paper away. Read it, pray for it, pray about it, build it, and return it. I mean, Probably not in the insert, but but I think it's available in the front and in the office. You can even put your name there, just as uh, Pastor Gilbert mentioned. If you're young or you're old, it doesn't matter. Rise up. Seek the God of Elijah and serve our Lord with all our heart and strength. The pastoral team and the deacons are counting on you. And I promise that we will give you all we can as we serve together for our Lord. We cannot do without you. Can you do that? Can you come forward and rise up and step up? I pray that you can. Let's pray together. God the Father, you are mighty, marvelous and gracious.
we're called by your grace into salvation and we're here to respond to your calling by serving you. Help us, help us to let go of whatever our hindrance is and guide us to seek your power as we see only weakness in ourselves. Move us by your Spirit so that our soul is revived and our heart is driven and motivated to strive for your kingdom goal. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.